Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our study from the Gospel of Matthew, we go on location to a party that's so hot the roof literally comes off. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as we take a look at this very interesting story from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, um, if you're here, that means, by the way, I imagine there's some people that are listening to this in the future on a drive home with kids in a car uh, from Florida. So it's spring break weekend, and uh, so if you're listening to this, coming back from a spring break trip, hopefully you got some sunlight and you got to reconnect with family and you uh, uh, got to reconnect with, with the soil, um, all the things that are hard to do in the, in the winter in Michigan. Um, but for all of us, uh, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited for where we get to go this morning. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Matthew, by the way, this is the other Matthew number 9. Matt Stafford, thank you. Uh, this is the, uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 9. We are... <laughs> what a weird brain I have. Um, we are... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's too soon, a little bit, right? A little bit too soon, right? To win the Super Bowl right after leaving. Um, we are, if you win the Super Bowl right after leaving, uh, <laughs> uh, if you're here for the first time, we've been waking our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we began in December, and we're going like chunk by chunk, line by line through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we have uh, been saying every week that Matthew is uh, one of four accounts of Jesus' life, but Matthew is the least likely disciple um, to tell the story of Jesus' life. And uh, now here's something, here's something fun. Can I tell you something fun? Uh, so we've been doing this series now for, well, how many months is that? December, January, February, what is it, March, April? Four months, almost four months. Four and a half months. We've been doing the series for four and a half months, and every week we've been starting it the same way by saying, "This is Matthew is the least likely disciple," and yet we haven't actually met Matthew in the gospel. So you guys have just been taking our word on that. Um, we actually haven't met Matthew. Matthew's story hasn't come up yet. This morning, uh, um, after five months of saying, um, "This Matthew's the least likely disciple," Matthew's the disciple that shouldn't be part of the disciples. If you like, but after all of Four months of doing that. Uh, this morning, we actually are going to look at the story of the time when Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple. <laughs> I thought everybody would be more excited about that. So, uh, this is getting a lot of Dutch amens, which is <laughs> celebrating in my heart. Uh, so now, I now have a new goal. My new goal is to get you ex- as excited as uh, uh, whoever said the woohoo. Thank you. Uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a pity woohoo, but I, oh, golly, that was, you, that was an authentic woohoo. Yes. I, my goal is to get all of us as excited as Holly is about this because she knows the story. Um, uh, this story is incredible. So that's my new goal. My original goal, which is my secondary goal, um, which is still a goal, is I want to, uh, this morning, something we try to do here every few months is take a step back from a traditional, typical sermon and try to ask the question, how do we read the Bible? Like, how do we do this? Um, uh, there, there is a, a format or a flow that I use every time I'm um, putting together a sermon. Um, every single time, if you, uh, I'll give it to you in just a moment. I've, 
given, if you've been here for a while, I've given it to you before, um, but I'll give it to you in a moment. And if you actually listen closely in sermons um, that I'm giving, you'll hear this, this same structure under almost every single sermon I, I preach. Uh, the format I use is text, questions, context, and then my text. Uh, so text is the biblical text. Um, essentially what you want to do with the first piece is you want to read the section of, of scripture that you're supposed to read, uh, that you're, that you're, that, um, whatever section you're reading, spend some time with it. Uh, the language I use is let it marinate. You know the difference between like a, a really good steak and a not as good steak isn't the amount of like ingredients you put in it. It's the amount of time you let those ingredients sit with it. Does that make sense? So you can, you, you put the ingredients on a steak and then you put, it in your, you put it in your fridge and then you let it sit overnight and you bring it out the next day and throw it on your grill. Those ingredients, um, they've worked their way into the steak. But if you take the same steak and the same ingredients, the same amount of time, um, they just haven't worked their way in if you wait until right before you put it on the grill. When it comes to reading the scriptures, I highly encourage you take whatever passage you're reading and spend some time with it. Um, Pastor Tom Ellenboss often talks about uh, reading the Bible slowly. I love these read the Bible in a year plans. I think they're great. Hear me say that. I think they're great. If you're doing one of them, I think they're great. And what they can accidentally encourage is a really fast reading of the Bible. And so just to get through it, you're reading it fast because I got to get like 25 chapters done today. Sometimes uh, I, I think God rewards the slow read. So that's the first piece, text. Uh, we try to start there. Every, usually it's a handful of corny jokes, and then I get into the text. When I mature, it'll, we'll start with the text, but right now it's corny jokes. And then uh, text, then questions, questions um, after you let the text sit for a while. So what I tend to do is, what are the immediate questions you have? Like, what are the ones that come right to the surface as soon as you read the passage? And then let the text sit for a while, marinate in it. And what questions come later after you've read it for a while? Write them down. Try to assume nothing. Uh, have a healthy curiosity with the scriptures. So whatever, uh, try to, try to uh, adopt the mentality of this is the first time I'm reading this passage, even if it isn't. Okay, so that's the second piece. Then context. Context is um, what did the first audience, when they received this, what would they have heard? Uh, is, is there anything that they would have understood is in this passage that because we live in a different culture, we miss? Um, is Jesus quote, if it's a story of Jesus, is he quoting anything from their Bible? The, what we refer to as the Old Testament. Is this story quoted anywhere later in Scripture? Do, do any of the, like Paul or Peter, any of the disciples or the apostles, do they have any insights looking backwards on the story that maybe help us understand what's going on here? So that's a context piece. And then finally, only after that, my text. My text is, okay, God, what do you want me to hear? Um, I, I highly encourage do the work first. If you jump to my text, and you've all experienced this if you're on social media at all, like the, the people who will grab a passage of scripture and pull it out of context and, uh, and then like slap it on a meme or something and you read it. And if you know the whole, the whole context, what you're feeling is, well, that's not actually what the passage says. I know, I know literally it's what the words say, but it's not, if you read it in context, it's not what it means. So only after you've, you've done the work, uh, really then like, okay, now God, what, what is this mean for me? Now, here's the beauty of the my text piece. If you do the work, I, am, I believe that the Holy Spirit might have a different my text for every single one of us. 
right? If we actually sit with it, um, as you'll see today in the passage we're gonna look at, God may have something totally different for every single one of us. One of the dangers of a sermon is we do the work together and then at the very end, the pastor tells you what it means for you. And it's like, no, well, no, no, like, okay, the context piece, like hopefully that hasn't changed a lot, like that we might learn some new things, but that's kind of fixed. The questions, we might all come to the same questions. But what God's saying to you, um, that after doing the work, like, okay, listen to that. Um, I, I try not to narrow that down too much, even though I do want to try to help in that. So text, questions, context, my text. Uh, that's the approach. Um, let's, let's do it this morning together. Let's start with text. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Matthew 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now, I won't pause a lot here, but just one quick pause. Um, do we have the map? Uh, the story we read, uh, Tierra walked us through last week. Jesus is in a city called Hippos, um, where he meets a demon-possessed man or demon-possessed men. Remember the story? He then crosses back. Anybody know which, what's his hometown is me- mentioned here? Where's Jesus from? Capernaum. So Jesus gets in a boat, and he leaves his hometown to go to Hippos, and then he gets back in a boat, and he goes back to Capernaum. So Jesus is now, uh, he had left this area, and he's Back home, uh, as you can notice, the, the city of Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. Um, so Jesus is here. Back to the story. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and he went home. And the crowds, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's, that's our text for the day. So text, let's move on to, to questions. Uh, I know we haven't let this marinate for a while, but are there any questions? And it's hard in a room this size, I get it. Last, last uh, eight o'clock service was smaller, so we were able to do a little bit of this work. But are there any questions for those of you who are extroverted and want to dare speak them out. What questions come to mind as you read a story like this? What are sinners? Sorry, teachers. Yeah. So where, where are they or why are they? Why are they there? Interesting. Yeah. Great question. Other questions? What's the connection between the paralyzed man and Matthew? I'll give you my list of questions in a minute, but that's, a, that's one of them. Other questions? Why is he paralyzed? Why is he paralyzed? Yeah. Why did they choose to bring him, the paralyzed man, to Jesus? Yeah. Why bring him to Jesus? 
Other questions? These are great. These are the right questions. By the way, there's all the questions. Um, as many as you can think of is always a great spot to start. Let me give you a list of mine. We could, we could go for more. Thank you for sharing those. Um, let me give you a list of my, my questions when reading. Some of, them take, some of them come after sitting with the passage for a little bit, and some of them came right away. So, um, but some of them came a little bit, took a little while. One of them is, um, this one came right away, was why is Matthew's story so late in Matthew's gospel? Now, this particular story is, is an all, well, there's four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in, their, in which stories they choose to tell. And this story is in all three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet Matthew, when he tells his own story, puts his story later. It's not until chapter 9. We've been in this for four and a half months. Mark, when he tells the same story, puts it in chapter 2. Why does Matthew put it so late? That's a question I have too. Like, why so late? And why here? Why does he put the story here? Is there anything Matthew wants us to see? That's a question. Um, second set of questions I have is around Matthew's name. Again, you got to do a little bit of work on this one, but if you hold the three stories of the, this exact story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version, up next to each other, what you discover is that Mark and Luke both refer to Jesus as Levi. But I'm sorry, both refer to Matthew as Levi. But Matthew, when he's referring to himself, refers to himself as Matthew. Now, um, that's not totally uncommon for a Jewish person to go by two names, like a business name and some, a na- like a family name. Um, especially if there were several Matthews in your community, you might call yourself by a name that people would recognize you. So it's not totally uncommon. And yet, why does Matthew, and it makes sense why Mark and Luke would both call him Levi, right? That's what everybody's calling him. But why does Matthew need you to know his name? Second set of questions. A third set of questions I have is, um, is Matthew's introduced as a tax collector, sitting at a tax collector's booth. And then he's mentioned again in a few verses. If you have your Bible, you can look at chapter 10. Um, in a few verses, he's, where, where he's listing the disciples, there's 12 disciples, and when Matthew lists the disciples, even though Matthew at this point in the story has, has left being a tax collector to become a disciple, he still calls himself Matthew the tax collector. Why does Matthew need you to know his occupation? He meant, he, he's emphatic about it. Okay, fourth set of questions I have. Matthew um, adds a line, or maybe uh, uh, Mark and Luke leave out a line from Jesus' speech. Um, Jesus uh, all three mention Jesus saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And all three mention, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But Matthew puts a, a, a section in the middle. Matthew tells us that Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why does Matthew include this line? Now, um, if you have a study Bible, um, you might notice that Jesus is quoting something here. What is he quoting Anybody have a study Bible? Who originally said, I desire mercy? Who wants to take a guess? Somebody said that too. Yeah, that's a great guess because Jesus quotes Isaiah a lot. It's a great guess. It's not Isaiah. (laughs) Not Sam. Hosea! Not Sam. That's a great guess too, though. It's Hosea, the prophet Hosea. It's an obscure little prophet. You wouldn't have probably guessed it right. I wouldn't have guessed it right. Um, But it's an obscure little prophet. And and so why quote Hosea? What's Hosea about? That's a question you should ask. Uh, Then the fifth set of questions I have is Jesus is accused of blasphemy for forgiving sins. 
Um, to, to this accusation, Jesus asks the question, he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Feels like a weird like, question to ask, right? Like it feels like, because the answer seems to be obvious. What's easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk. That seems obvious, right? And to some of the crowd, I assume that that's what they would have heard in that. And yet to the religious leaders, no, what, what's obvious is it's way easier to say get up and walk than it is to say your sins are forgiven. The reason is because only God can forgive sins. That's what they believed. Only God can forgive sins. Other people have, have done miraculous things. Elijah and Elisha both raised the dead, but only God can forgive sins. So for them, the question seems obvious. Now, it's to this that Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In your Bible, the Son of Man reference is capitalized. Why? Great, great question. He's referencing something. Our translators are... are tipping us off to, he's referencing something. Okay, that's your homework. Figure that out one before we get there. See if you can figure it out. Um, so all these questions. Now, as I sat with these questions, and you can, we can keep going, um, I, I had another question that came to me later in the game on this passage. This is the question I had uh, as I sat with the story and kind of read it and reread it and reread it. Because you got to picture the scene. A paralyzed man is brought to Jesus Jesus sees the paralyzed man brought to Jesus. We'll look at Mark's account in a moment, and you'll see it takes a little bit of effort to get this man here. The, Jesus' response to the paralyzed man who's been brought to Jesus is to say, your sins are forgiven. If you're the paralyzed man, is that what you necessarily want from Jesus in this moment? No, you want him to say, get up and walk. Jesus will say, get up and walk, but it's only after he says, your sins are forgiven, and then the, the religious leaders say, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. And then he says, okay, get up and walk, but, which is what the guy seems to have wanted in the first place. So why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Why that reference? That's text, questions. More questions, the better. Now you have some work to solve, right? Now, as you're studying your Bible, you have some work to do because now you want to answer these questions, as many as you can. You try to figure out the answers. Um, so some of them you'll figure out a little easier than others, um, but some of them are going to take a bit of digging. Let me uh, do, I've done the digging for you. You're welcome. Um, context, uh, context. Uh, the, so when answering the context question, uh, one of the best places to start is to simply ask the question of, is this story recorded in any of the other Gospels? And do they add any details to the story that either Matthew decided to not include for some reason or that maybe help us understand more fully what's going on in the story? Turns out the answer to that is yes, uh, they do. In fact, Mark tells a story, Mark chapter 2, again, way earlier. Uh, Mark chapter 2 records the story. Notice the details Mark adds. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the, few, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat. By the way, if you heard this story before, that doesn't even strike you as absurd. It's absurd. Um, by digging a hole in the roof and, uh, and then lowered the man on the mat, that, uh, lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, 
their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So Mark gives us some more details, and now that raises a whole another set of questions. But notice the details. Um, both tell us he's in Capernaum, his hometown. But, but Mark tells us he's in someone's house. So now we get the story. It's not outside in an open courtyard. It's in someone's house. They're in someone's house. And apparently the house is packed with people. And uh, here's a picture of a house, um, a recreation of a house. Uh, somebody in the first service said, doesn't look like you can get a lot of people in there. When we go to Israel, we'll get 50 in there, FYI. So you can. It's not comfortable. Um, so they're packed in this house, and then uh, all of a sudden the roof starts to physically get ripped off of the house. Now, scholars think that this would have probably taken hours to do, hours to do. Roofs were made of mud and branches, and then maybe some tile, and then more mud and branches, and then maybe some more tile, and then more mud and branches. Hours to do. It's a long project to rip off a roof. Um, you you might know what I would love to know? I would love to know what Jesus is doing as the mud is falling off the roof. Does he like stop? Is it like when someone's cell phone goes off and I just pretend I don't hear it? Um, like, is it, or does Jesus like wait and say, okay, uh, like what is, what is Jesus doing as the mud is coming over the course of it? Does he push on or does he stop? My other question I have is, I wonder, so whoever's house this is, I wonder what he's thinking, right? What are they thinking as the mud is coming off of the roof? Because uh, apparently, uh, so I would always assumed when I grew up hearing the story is that like they snuck this man up on the roof and they s- ripped a hole sneakily and they lowered this man like, s- like slyly. But you can't, you can't rip somebody's roof off in a quiet manner, right? This takes some noise. It takes some energy. Um, this is not like they snuck him in this hole. This takes some work. So the, the owner of the house, he must at some point have looked at Jesus like, and Jesus at some point must have been like, just let it happen, let it happen, let it happen. Uh, and then apparently they wait. Um, now we have to remember Jesus is a, a Jewish rabbi. He's a teacher and he's a great teacher. We've, we've seen this. And the thing to understand about Jewish rabbis is everything is an opportunity to teach people about how to live in God's world. Every distraction, the rabbis would say, it's not a distraction, it's an opportunity. God must be trying to show me something that fits the teaching I'm, I'm trying to give. And so when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, we made this point a couple weeks ago, and he talks about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. He could almost certainly was pointing out actual flowers and actual birds to make his point. Instead of, instead of like using a PowerPoint, he's saying, look at the flowers, or look at the flowers, look at the birds. So in this story, the question I want to know is, how is Jesus going to connect this to his sermon? Which raises my next question is, what is Jesus' sermon? What is Jesus' sermon? Now, um, the, to heal this man, uh, Jesus doesn't, this is, this is kind of hard for us to hear, I think, for some of us, but um, Jesus doesn't just go around healing people for the sake of healing people. Um, although Jesus cares about all people, uh, we often read in the Bible that Jesus' heart was moved to compassion for somebody. Um, but, but a miraculous healing is actually problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, at least a couple of reasons. One is, um, so let's imagine Jesus, he does heal this man, uh, and you've got a friend or a family member who also needs healing. What, is, what are you thinking? What about me? And so you now have, like, uh, there's one story at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus is stuck in a village because everyone's bringing all their sick and all, like, and so Jesus could be stuck, and this is all he could do. Um, that's the first problem, is it raises the what about me uh, the second problem with a miraculous healing 
is it assumes that the thing God is most concerned with is fixing all of our problems. God cares about meeting us in our problems, but it assumes that the biggest thing Jesus is here to do is fix our problems. But we've been in Matthew long enough to know that that's not Jesus' primary concern. Jesus is trying to raise up disciples who can carry on his teachings to inaugurate the universal reign of Jesus, of Christ, uh, and declare God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's come to do. Uh, ultimately, he's come to, uh, to show the world what it looks like to have peace with God uh, through his own blood shed on a cross. If all he does is miraculous healings, he gets stuck there. So the question then is, why does Jesus heal this man? What is he trying to teach? How does Jesus fit this teaching into his lesson? What is Jesus teaching in the house? Now, we're not told. We're not told what, what sermon Jesus is teaching. We're not told what he's teaching on. And yet there's clues. I want to propose to you that the thing Jesus is teaching on in the house that he connects this man lowering through the roof to is, any guesses? Forgiveness. Here's why. When the man gets lowered, the very first thing he says to the man is, your sins are forgiven. It feels disconnected to the, what the man actually wants. He'll get to what the man wants, but he starts with, your sins are forgiven. Um, I, his statement isn't about what the man's dealing with. It's about forgiveness. Apparently, what Jesus is teaching in the house is, how, what does it look like to have the forgiveness of sins? Forgiveness. Now, if that was our only evidence, the evidence is thin. However, if that is what Jesus is teaching, which I propose it is, it changes, it, it makes sense of all of the other questions we just asked. Let me show you. Uh, Jesus will respond to them. Uh, they'll, they'll say, he says, your sins are forgiven. They'll say, that's blasphemy. Only God can do this. He responds with, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But I want to show you that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus calls himself the son of man. What is that a reference to? Who did the work? Daniel. Thank you, Lisa, right? Yeah, I was, I, Lisa, you're great. <laughs> you got it, always. Um, son of man is a reference to Daniel. The first mention of son of man is Daniel, at least in this kind of context. It's Daniel. Jesus is referencing Daniel here. Now, um, to a Jewish teacher, the best way to make your point isn't through logic or reason, though they use logic and reason. The best way to make your point is through the text itself. If you're trying to teach something about who God is, you do it by teaching the text uh, through what is known as remez. We've talked about remez. When Jesus says the son of man, he's referencing a passage in Daniel that they would have known. But beyond this, it's not just a passage they would have known. It actually both addresses the accusation of this is blasphemy and it talks about the forgiveness of sins. Here's the passage. It's Daniel chapter seven. Um, Daniel is a prophet lives a few hundred years before Jesus. And uh, Daniel, essentially, um, he's, he's got a vision. And in his vision, it's, he, he, what he sees is it's kingdom versus kingdom, then nation versus nation, and then uh, all these hurting people. And he looks around for who's going to help the hurting people because it's kingdom fighting against kingdom. And as he looks around, what he realizes is not even the religious people are helping the hurting people. The religious people are scared. They're running. So now God has got a dilemma. What is God's answer to the dilemma? He will send in what he refers to as the son of man. Let me read the portion of the vision. 
In, the, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, a reference to God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will, be, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What was the word that they described? He was given Okay, listen to how the crowds respond. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. They, they catch it. This makes, you guys with me? Did you guys hear that Will Smith smacked Chris Rock? There you are. Okay, back to it. Uh, can I nerd out on you a bit? <laughs> Screensavers for a minute there. Uh, Let me nerd out just for a bit on you. I, I find this interesting. Stay with me. Uh, in the 200 years, be, 200 or so years between Daniel and Jesus, a legend emerged out of this prophecy. The question behind the legend was, who is the son of man? How will we know when the son of man is here? Who is the son of man? The legend said, well, we got to look for clues in the text. It's always about the text. Well, the phrase son of man in the Hebrew, the original language, is ben, son of, ben, ben. The word man in Hebrew is the word adam. Ben, adam, or we'd say Adam. Ben, Adam, son of man. So what they said was, oh, ben, Adam, that can't just be. There's another word for man, it's the word ish, but the passage says ben, adam. God must be trying to tell us something about who the son of man is. It has to be the son, the legend goes, it has to be the son, what they believed, the son of Adam. Now, Adam in the Bible has a couple of sons. You know their names, maybe. Cain and Abel. Cain, which of those sons would it be? Well, one of those sons is innocent, is killed by his brother. Cain kills Abel, and he's innocent. And we, in fact, if you read the story in Genesis, Abel's blood, it says, cries out from the ground. So the legend emerged that the son of man, when the world gets bad enough, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, and even the religious people are turning a blind eye to it. God will send Abel, and Abel will come because he died as an innocent man. And Abel will come, according to the legend, their legend, he'll come, and Abel will be our judge. Now, this is where the legend turned into two camps of thought. Because the question was, when Abel comes, what's he going to do? One camp said, Abel's going to come, and he's going to come with like a blowtorch. Look at all these, these sinners, all these people doing the wrong thing. Burn, baby, burn. That's one camp. The other camp said, maybe, but he may come and offer forgiveness. He may, because Abel is killed by his brother Cain, and if you follow the biblical story, Cain is sent off and you can trace a lot of brokenness and pain and misery to Cain being exiled. A lot of the pain in the Bible is rooted in Cain's exile. And so maybe the son of man, according to one group, maybe he comes and he offers forgiveness to Cain. And we begin healing this world. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this moment? By connecting the son of man reference. Not only is Jesus in this moment talking about forgiveness, but he's, which is what he seems to be preaching on. But he's also now talking about who he is, his role in this whole thing, and he's calling out the religious leaders for their role in this thing, and he's also making commentary on the role of the Son of Man. 
He's coming to heal the wounds. He's coming to offer forgiveness. And Matthew puts his story right after this one. Why? Well, Matthew tells us why. Because he's a tax collector. Now, in fact, tax collectors in their world, which is, some of this may be recap, there's no worse sinner than a tax collector in their world. No one. There's, there's writings of, Jew, of the community of this time that will say that tax collectors were even worse than the Romans. Because here's what a tax collector did. A tax collector, by the way, in this, tax collectors and sinners. It's, it's a rung below sinners. Tax collectors were, were those people who... Um, when Rome occupied Israel, uh, so it, I hate using this metaphor, but it's actually shockingly accurate. Imagine the Ukrainians, and as the Russians occupy Ukraine, this is what it's like in Israel in the first century. All of a sudden, your life is totally different. What was peace, walking down the street, going to synagogue, now you have a Roman soldier, and he's standing there weapon, with weapons in his hands. You don't mess with him. The tax collectors were the Jews who worked with Rome to collect money. You can imagine how how much they would be hated. This would be like a Ukrainian working with Russia. You can see why they would be more hated than even the, the Romans themselves. You're a traitor. You're a sellout. You, um, you, to make a few extra dollars, you would betray your people. They hated the tax collectors, hated the tax collectors, despised the tax collectors. And Jesus, you're going to go eat with a tax collector? You're going to go to a party with lots of tax collectors? You're going to call a disciple out of a tax collector? But worse, Mark will tell us that Matthew, when he's collecting taxes, is collecting them by the sea. Understand that tax collecting wasn't impersonal. It's not like we, we file a, a tax form and then we send it in and then we, or like the money goes away. Um, it's not that. Tax collecting in the first century, let's imagine you're Peter. You're a fisherman. You've been fishing all night long. You come back. It's been a hard night. You got 10 fish. On the side of the beach, the Sea of Galilee, you've got, you've got Matthew and he's waiting for you. He's got a Starbucks. He's not, he's not worked all night. He's just showing up to work. He's, uh, he's fresh-eyed. And you've been working all night long, and he's standing there, this traitor who works for the enemy. And he says to you, Peter, how many do you have? And you say, I've got 10. It's been a long night. It's not been a good fish. I didn't, a good fish? Is that what they say? Um, it's not, so I've been a good fish. Um, <laughs> I got 10. Matthew looks at you and says, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Those are mine. You may have two. You hate tax collectors. You hate, you know Matthew. You, you hate Matthew. Why does Matthew put his story right after the story of forgiveness? How far does grace extend in Jesus' kingdom? That's the question. And then he puts in the middle of the speech of Jesus, he reminds his audience of this quote from Hosea. Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea, if you read it, is a rant. Hosea is a prophet on a rant. His rant is, you have all of these religious leaders who demand sacrifice from people, while they themselves expect mercy from God. 
God, forgive us and thank you that we're not as bad as them. Punish them. Or at the very least, they owe us sacrifice. These are religious leaders who are grateful that they've been forgiven, but they will not extend the forgiveness to others. There is a risk, Jesus recognizes, and I think Matthew catches it, that if you miss the warning of Hosea, you could be so eager to see Jesus in the house that you would step over a man on a mat who can't get in. There's a risk, according to Hosea, according to Jesus, and according to Matthew, that you could miss the fact that there's a man who's sitting by the sea waiting to be invited into a new life but feeling unable because grace doesn't extend to him. If you do not forgive others like God has forgiven us, um, then you do not participate in the healing. That's what Abel came to say. You have to. You have to. Okay, that's the, that's the context. Now the my text. I'll go quick. Um, the my text of it all. After all the questions, after all the contacts, now we ask, God, what do you need me to hear? And again, uh, trust the Holy Spirit on this one. Don't, don't let me tell you what God's trying to tell you. Um, what is God trying to tell you? Like, that's always the work. You learn the content. You do your best to wrestle with the text. And now, God, what do you need me to hear? There, there's a number of things, God. You, God might be speaking to you that you need to be like the friends who lowered the man through the roof. Like, that might, like there's a number of things. I don't want to narrow down what God is trying to say. Um, but let me offer, uh, for the sake of, uh, let me just tell you where I am feeling nailed on this one. Um, this seems to me that what God is trying to speak to me is all about forgiveness. And I think forgiveness in this passage, what you learn is it works on multiple levels. And it's good news on multiple levels. For some of us, we feel like Matthew. And we feel like there's something in our lives that, um, something we carry with us from our past that is so bad that if somebody were to learn about it, we wouldn't be included. I've actually talked to people who will say, like, yeah, I show up to church and um, it feels like everyone knows what I did. Everyone's looking at me. Everyone knows how I messed up. I've actually talked to some people who will say, I can't, I, I don't dare go to church because I have a reputation in our community and I don't want to ruin the reputation of your church by showing up. Some people feel like Matthew. Others have been hurt by Matthew, a Matthew in our life. So it's not Matthew, it's not the shame and the guilt he feels. It's actually the wounds we carry is somebody in your world and somebody hurts you and you are, like legitimate pain has been caused by them. Forgiveness, forgiveness, what does that look like? And there's a story that I carry with me when I think about forgiveness. It's a little Zen story um, the story is of two men, <clears throat> and uh, the two men are walking home one day and uh, along this river, and they see this lady, and she's sitting next to the river. And as they, they stop, they say to the, to the woman, um, is, is everything okay? Can we help you? And she's, she's crying because the river, when she crossed it in the morning, was low, but now it's like it's rushing, and she can't get across the river, and, and she needs to get across the river to go back home. And so the men look at each other and decide what they must do. They have to do this. And so they, they pick the lady up and they carry her across the river. She goes one way, they go the other way. She goes home, they go the other way. Um, 15 minutes after the event, men are still wet. Uh, one of the guys says to the other guy, do you notice that she never even said thank you? Can you believe that? She never even said thank you. We're all wet here, carried her across. She couldn't do it without us. She never even said thank you. Another half an hour goes by. 
Seriously, she never said thank you. Like, I cannot believe it. Like, I, like I'm like, come on, I'm chafing. Like, I can't, she never even said thank you. Another hour goes by. I mean, come on, man. You gotta, that's gotta get you. She could have at least, at least, honestly, what she should have done is paid us. Like, she, most people would have said, I need some money. She could have at least said thank you. Another hour goes by. Seriously, that doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you. The one guy looks at his friend and says, I put her down hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? It's a good little story. Why are you still carrying her? Um, The thing with forgiveness is it's the decision to trust God with the things that we are carrying that that burden us and weigh us down. Um, The invitation of Jesus in the story works both ways. For those of us who have messed up, for those of us who feel like Matthew, the invitation is we can receive forgiveness. The baggage of an old life. Now, does that mean you don't have to make amends? Does that mean you don't have to say you're sorry? Does that mean you don't have to try to fix the things you broke? Of course you have to do those things. Um, this is not cheap grace, but it is scandalous grace. It is scandalous grace. Um, it's the reminder to let, let it go is a reminder that you are not the very worst thing you've done. You are not the worst thing you've thought. The enemy will want you to believe that, but you are not the worst. Your reputation does not ruin a reputation of some. You are not that. You have to let that go. But it also works the other way. For those of us who have been hurt, for those of us who had a, an individual uh, with a name like Matthew hurt us, um, those old wounds also are not yours to carry. Those wounds, they're toxic, they're poisonous. Their past actions towards you do not need to dictate your future. Um, Let me be really clear. I'm not trying to diminish what they did. I'm not trying to excuse it. I would never do that. I'm not. um, uh, Matthew has to undo the damage he did as a tax collector. You'll see that in the story as it plays out. Um, But some of you, you've had some horrible things done to you. and I, it's important that you acknowledge that. Forgiveness is not pretending as though it didn't happen. It's not getting a hall pass. It's not ignoring the pain. It's not ignoring justice or consequences for it. It is the conscious decision that I will no longer carry that weight. Um, I, I, God, would you carry this weight? I cannot bear this anymore. It's the conscious decision to say, God, take it. When I was uh, 25, one last quick story. When I was 25, um, I uh, graduated seminary, and in my first two years of ministry, I started to notice that all of my friends were leaving the ministry already. And uh, we had gone through seminary together, did the whole thing, and all of a sudden they're like leaving. And I started, I had this moment where I realized the shelf life of a pastor is really short. Um, if you don't, if like, I got, these are people that were clearly called into ministry. They did the schooling. And so I had this, uh, I went on this like little journey to uh, interview all of the older pastors I could, I could reach. Um, and so I just started asking around, like, do you, do you have an older pastor, like somebody who's retired or close to retirement? I'd like to sit down with them. And I uh, sat down with a number of pastors and uh, asked the same questions to everyone, like, hey, what, what lessons would you want to pass on? What do you wish you would have heard when you were younger? Um, I got great ones. One guy said, you know, I, <laughs> he said, I've never met an ex-tither. 
which is great. That's great advice. Um, it's uh, like I've never met somebody that gave and stopped giving. It's great advice, and it works really well to say before you ask for an offering. Um, but it's, it's great advice. It's like people that give, like generosity continues to grow you. Um, but I had one pastor. I remember where I was sitting when he said it. He, uh, I asked him the question, and he sat back, and he said, Forgive everyone for everything. I wish I would have done that sooner. Forgive everyone for everything. I wish I would have done that sooner. A P.S. to the story, Matthew, when Jesus calls him to follow him, leaves everything. It's as though Matthew was waiting for somebody to believe in him enough to invite him out of his old life. He wanted to leave it. Who in our lives are just waiting for somebody? In business, they refer to it as the I see in you conversations. Somebody that you have in your life that you can say, I see in you a better future. Forgive everyone for everything. I wish I would have done that sooner. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we... uh, Uh, Lord, we are just aware of the fact that as we talk about forgiveness, even that word forgiveness opens up old wounds, um, things that we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy trying not to look at, trying to avoid. And so, Jesus, um, we do so delicately, and we do so absolutely and utterly dependent on you to bring healing. Uh, Lord, we, um, we've tried the coping mechanisms. They don't work. Lord, bring healing. Bring healing. Help us to set ourselves free. Help us to set them free. Um, Lord, bring healing. Uh, Lord, would you remind us that there is a life beyond whatever it was? Uh, And Lord, would you help us um, to not be held back by something that just, Lord, though we have been a victim uh, of some horrible things, uh, some some people in this room, um, Lord, help us to not live as victims. Uh, Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said... As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.